And so I'm going to read starting in verse 25, and uh, I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 40. This is God's word. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord." Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. You may be seated. I want to give my welcome too to those who are visiting. My name is Joshua Earl. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for visiting with us today. Let's get right into the study of this passage. Well, many years ago, or a number of years ago, before uh, my family and I began our church planting journey, uh, we were privileged with living in the mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And on occasion, we lived very closely to the entrance of the Blue Ridge Parkway. So on occasion, we'd get in the car and we'd go look for a scenic overlook and we'd go park our car, usually with the goal of trying to find an overlook or a summit that we could climb so we could take in the view. And we did this in places like Grandfather Mountain in Linville, and we've been down to Big Bald near Asheville, just over the, the border in Tennessee. And of course, if you know, if you've been around, you know the Appalachian Mountains are but small hills compared to some places in the world. But still, when you're standing at an elevation of five or 6,000 feet, you have uh, an advantage, a, a panoramic advantage, you might say, uh, that ground dwellers do not. You can see distant peaks and, and rivers and, and valleys. 
And the higher one moves in elevation, the further the horizon extends. In fact, on a clear day at Grandfather Mountain, which is just under 6,000 feet, you can see the Charlotte skyline, which is 90 miles away, as the crow flies. You see, when you're standing at so high a height, a most unique thing happens. Distances are foreshortened. In other words, what's actually many miles away in distance is brought close enough to discern its details. Trails and pathways are defined. And if you happen to be lost, you can discern and see where you ought to go. Now, friends, for the the Christian, we have a similar vantage point when it comes to human history. God's word enables us to stand, as it were, on a mountaintop and see far into the future. We know what is at the end of the horizon and what is the goal of history from heaven's standpoint, which, of course, you know, we've repeated this many times, which is for all of creation to bow their knee in worship to King Jesus. Well, so far in 1 Corinthians 7 for the last three Sundays, we've considered how what Jesus has done for us ought to have an effect on the way that we think about our relationships and our life circumstances. And today we see the Apostle Paul conclude this section on marriage and singleness, where he will address a specific group of people, and that is those who are considering marriage in this church in Corinth. But I want to tell you ahead of time, this section, this section is really a far broader and greater evaluation of how every Christian ought to be thinking about life in general and specifically the future. And Paul says that because of our vantage point, certainly we can see things that maybe the rest of the world cannot see. From our vantage point, We can discern things that the rest of the world cannot discern. From our vantage point, we can discern and go and do and be and be in places that matter most and therefore know the trails and the pathways that God is calling us to and live a life that is pleasing to God. If you're a note taker and you want to know the title of this sermon, I'm going to give you probably the longest title you've ever heard me give you. The sermon title today is A Note to the Unmarried, excuse me, A Word to the Unmarried, although you could write note, A Word to the Unmarried, parenthesis, and the rest of us too. A Word to the Unmarried and the rest of us too. This section has a whole lot of nuggets for those of us, yes, who are considering marriage, but also for the rest of us that have big life decisions in front of us. And we'll begin once again by considering the the setting or the context of this section, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at just two considerations that Paul wants his readers to make before they make this decision, before they embark on the journey of marriage or whatever decision that they are making. So if that's you today and you have before you a decision to make, a big decision Uh, Perhaps the Lord might speak something to you through his word today. If you like headings, I'll give you two. The first is consider the time. The second is consider your purpose. Consider the time. 
Consider your purpose. Let's look at the first together. Consider the time. Consider the time. Now, if you were here last Sunday or you heard the sermon, you remember me saying, hopefully, that verses 17 to 24 are the hinge verses on which the rest of the chapter is held. Paul's point has been that in whatever life situation God has assigned to you, remain there, and what are the key words? With him. Remain there with him. And so now Paul turns to those who are as yet unmarried and who are wondering, Paul, how does that advice, how does that wisdom apply to me? And now just a heads up for you, this section requires a lot of explanation. This section will probably have you scratching your head if you've not studied it in quite some time. And I'll do my best to answer some questions, but we're definitely not going to be able to answer every question that you have. But let's look at a few. In verse 1, Paul addresses this group that he calls the betrothed. Now, some translations, actually most translations, use the word virgins right there. But that word is a versatile word. It's probably a reference to people who are something like promised to another. It's a person who is promised to another person, i.e. engagement. Paul would be uh, writing in this section mainly to men. Well, why is that? Well, in Paul's day, it was the man who would take initiative in pursuing marriage. But of course, he has anyone in mind probably who is thinking about marriage. He's talking to couples. Evidently, Paul is answering here either a direct question that's been asked to him in a previous letter, or he's preempting a question that might be asked that would naturally arise as he's been giving his counsel thus far. And this is a subject that he confesses to them, uh, is one that he has no direct command from the Lord on. But, he says, and I think this is a bit of humor here, as one who the Lord has mercifully called to be an apostle, he'll give his good apostolic judgment as a trustworthy source of wisdom. And it's a bit tongue-in-cheek because we know this is the Bible. We know this is Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. So Paul is humble, but we know that this is a message for us even today. So what wisdom does Paul want to pass along to those who are planning for or who are desiring marriage? Well, immediately we're reminded that Paul is writing within a historical set of events that he has in his mind. And though there's a, a universality to the wisdom that he's writing because it's a scripture, it has to be considered in light of these events, just as we would consider if we found, for example, a letter written to a Jew in, in Poland in 1939 or a letter written to a Christian in Syria today, we'd want to consider the context of what was going on in the writing of that letter. So Paul says in verse 26, see these words? In view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, what is this present distress that Paul is speaking about? Well, this word present, of course, refers to something that's going on right now. It's actively occurring. And distress, based on the context here, means something like calamity or crisis or hard times. Now, the fact that 
he doesn't describe what this crisis is, proves that the Corinthians knew exactly what he's talking about. He gives us no information at all about it, but that means they know exactly what he's talking about. And as good biblical scholars and historians, we can make an educated guess as to what he's talking about. Uh, You remember back in Acts chapter 11 when Agabus stood up and prophesied that the whole world was about to encounter a great famine. And that's exactly what happened. He said it was during the reign of Claudius. There was a famine, a grain shortage around the world. And at the writing of this letter, it was coming toward the end of that famine. So that could have been the present distress. We also know that emperors were changing and Nero was coming. And if you know history, you know Nero was one of the most vicious emperors to Christians that there was. He would do things like tie live Christians, so live Christians in dead animal carcasses, and then throw them to the lions for entertainment. He would do things like cover Christians in tar and then light them up and light them on fire for the evening parties that he would throw. He was a vicious man. And so the distress could be the persecution that Paul knows is coming, although there's not really any evidence of that in this letter. Whatever the historical crisis, the historical event was, this is what Paul wants them to do, since we don't actually know what it is. Paul wants them to interpret this present distress in light of redemptive history in light of heaven's timeline. Do you catch the sense of urgency in Paul's voice? See in verses 27 to 28, he says, are you bound or better obligated to a wife? And that word wife in the Greek can also be translated woman. He says, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So what's he saying? In other words, if if you're engaged, you should stay the course, continue on with it. And if you get married, you're not sinning. In fact, in verses 36 to 38, he's talking to engaged couples who just can't control their passions. And so Paul says, if you can't control your passions, what are you waiting for? Get married right away. But self-control is the better option. So if you can control your passions, stay engaged for a time, and focus on your undistracted service to Christ. What's Paul's concern here? Paul's concern is that these Christians take the best course of action given the uncertainty of the time that they have left. This is what he's getting at, I think, in verses 28 and following. He says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And at the end of verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. You see what he's doing? Given the course of events, given the present distress, recognize, dear church, that you live in the midst of an unfolding drama that's heading toward a certain end. In other words... Church, you live in a world that is stamped with an expiration date. It is actively passing away. 
Like a scene in a play where the curtain is closing and the actors are changing their costumes and masks and putting on new ones, a new scene is about to take place. A new scene is about to start. So now one says, okay, so what does that mean for me? I want to get married. I want nothing more than to be married. I have my eyes set on marriage. I, I, I am married maybe. Maybe I am married right now, and I'm married to this woman. And Paul, here I am in this, this life. What do I do? Well, Paul, you can see the pastor here. He's, he wants to be gracious to these people. But he is saying, Marriage most certainly complicates things. How? Well, marriage, marriage, divinely ordained though it is, is a temporary convention reserved only for this life. Jesus told us in Matthew 22, in the kingdom of heaven, in the resurrection, no one will be marrying or given in marriage, but each will be like the angels of God. So in other words, marriage is something that is for now. Marriage is something for this present world order. And Paul says that marriage ties you to and makes you oriented to this present world order. Wonderful though it is, and I've been married 17 years, my wife is sitting right there. Wonderful though it is, marriage concerns us with worldly things and keeps our eyes off of the future. It keeps our eyes off of the new heaven and the new earth that he's going to bring to pass very soon. Marriage, no matter how good it is, brings with it a whole set of complications and a whole set of hardship. Friends, marriage, Paul says, means that you're concerned not just with yourself, but for a whole other person as yourself. So your time is not yours. Your life is not yours. Your life is controlled not necessarily by the things that are above, but by the things of the earth. And Paul says, the earth is wearing old like a garment. You see? Friends, we need to realize Paul is not criticizing marriage. Paul speaks more highly of marriage than any New Testament writer. He's not criticizing marriage. Rather, he wants this church to consider the cost of building the tower before they start building it. He wants them like the king to sit down and consider, can I bear with the losses that I am going to face if I enter into this war? In other words, since you've only been given a set amount of time on this earth and your decision to get married or in any major decision, will this decision tie you more tightly to this present world or will it serve to loosen your grip from it? David Garland, the commentator, says it like this. Paul is not concerned about the duration of time, but the character of time. He's talking not about how little time is left, but about how Christ's death and resurrection have changed how Christians should look at the time that is left. 
He understands the compressing of time to mean that the future outcome of this world has become crystal clear. And those who have a definite future and see it clearly live in the present with radically altered values as to what counts and what does not. You see, friends, how much time that we have left before Jesus returns in really a lot of ways is not our concern. It's, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's irrelevant. That time may or may not be short according to how we measure time. But friends, our lives are certainly short. Have you ever noticed that the younger you are, the longer you think you have on this earth? No one thinks about 30 years from now when you've not even reached 30 yet. Paul is saying, your life is a fleeting breath. And that's why he says in verse 29, from now on, if you have the panoramic advantage of knowing that, like John says, the world is passing away along with its desires, Let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they are not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? For the form of the the present form of this world is passing away. So what's Paul saying here? If you're married, neglect your spouse? Absolutely not. Is he saying you're not going to have emotions, you're not going to have joys, you're not going to have sorrows? Absolutely not. He's not advocating for the neglect of our spouses. He's not saying you won't have real emotions as you walk through this life. He's not saying you're not going to conduct business and be business people and enjoy the good things that God has given to you. But he is saying that in our relationships in our emotions, with our possessions, in our view of what we've always considered to be success, those things must always be seen as through a filter. Friends, this life and all its joys and sorrows and politics and business is temporary. Marriage is not ultimate. And I'm saying that as a happily married man. Joy and sorrow is not the last word. Possessions will decay. Business deals won't matter a lick in very short order because the day of the Lord is coming. And either all will see and it will happen in a universal way, which Jesus promises it will, or it will come in your and my death. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth on which righteousness dwells. Friends, I fear that we don't focus enough on passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and 2 Peter 3 in our everyday lives. I'll just confess to you that I don't think enough about the transient nature of life itself, the fickleness, the the tenuousness of life. Each day I have the joy of driving my daughter to school still that's about to change when she gets her license, so I take it in when I can. But as we drive through the neighborhoods, we see other kids waiting for the bus, and we see them in this position every time. There's this one young lady that walks like this to the bus stop. We see her every day. Looking down, seeing what's going on, scrolling, passing the time, And we do the same thing. And I wonder, do we ever stop to think, is this how I would use my time if I knew that this day would be my last day on earth? Do I think that way? Dear ones, if we're honest, no matter what our age is, we must confess that we are so deeply tied, so deeply entrenched to this world that we rarely think about the one that's to come. We're so tempted to live in the moment and we're constantly being sucked in by the undertow of the constant waves of entertainment and desire for worldly success, but rarely stopping to consider, why am I doing this? Is this a good use of the time that God has given me. Because brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, God has already shown us And Jesus has already shown us by going ahead of us and rising with a resurrection body that this world order is passing away. Paul wants to shake us out of our anesthetized state, not to scare us, not to imply that we should withdraw from the world, not to demonize the present order, but to bring us back up to the summit and observe the events of the world going on around us and then look off into the distance and take a gander and see and ask ourselves the question, am I living today in light of that day? In view of the the shortened time that we have and the present distress, am I making my decisions with heaven's calendar open? Am I planning to do big things? We are constantly being told, do big things, dream big. Okay, if we're dreaming big, do I have heaven's calendar open as I'm dreaming big? Am I looking at that day in light of this day? Friends, is there a sense of urgency in my heart? 
to warn those who are around me, who are made in God's image, yet under his wrath, to turn from their wickedness and to trust Christ, to run to Christ. Friends, do I see that fellowship with my brothers and my sisters is more important than my times of leisure and entertainment and quiet because the day is drawing near, says Hebrews, and I need to be exhorted. I need to be encouraged. Parents, do we realize that the allure of this age is too strong for our children? So it's up to us to fill their minds and fill their hearts with the truth of God's word before they head off to school. Friends, are we living today in light of that day and our decision making? When Jesus returns, is really, for this purpose, irrelevant. What matters is what I'm doing with the time I've been given. And that's what Paul will address now in the second and last point. Consider your purpose. Consider your purpose. Again, I love Paul, how he so much wants to balance out his pastoral counsel. In verse 32, he he says, "I, I, I want you to be free from anxieties. He wants these Corinthians to have an eternal perspective while also not putting undue pressure on them. He wants to promote good order in their lives. That is, he wants, to, he wants to promote a lifestyle, the best possible lifestyle for them, while also advocating that they have their priorities in the right place in light of their limited time on the earth. So this whole chapter, this whole section is filled with nuance. For example, in verse 36, Paul addresses the man who is engaged or promised to a woman. We've already addressed that. Or how about widows in verses 39 through 40? He says marriage is a permanent institution until death, that is. So if your spouse dies, you don't need to remain unmarried. Feel the freedom to be remarried, but only in the Lord as long as he is a believer. But listen, in my judgment, you'll be happier if you remain as you are. And I too think I have the spirit of God, he says somewhat sarcastically. But the idea here is that Paul really does want them to be free from anxieties. If a person chooses to marry, that, that's great. But if you can refrain from marriage, he says, you'll do even better. Now, why is this? We have to stop and ask the question, why is singleness for Paul preferred over any other station in life? Or really, what is the big principle in this section? What's the same instruction that he would give to all Christians everywhere, no matter the station they are in life. For this, I'm going to reread a few verses. Look at verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul repeatedly in this chapter lays down the same instruction. Remain where you are. Lead the life that God has assigned to you. 
remain there with God. He says it over and over and over again. Why does he keep pushing this advice? The answer is, if you're a Christian and you have been bought by the shed blood of Jesus, you have been brought into the kingdom of God really for one primary purpose. And that is to lead a life of undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's your calling. Marriage, child rearing, family life, friendship, these are all gifts from God and they're so much a part of our lives and we please God when we love and care for the people in our lives, friends. But listen, without laying undue restraint on his readers, Paul wants them to consider this main point. Are my priorities controlled by the Lord? In every situation is my first thought, Lord, is this pleasing to you? Does this Action, this activity, this decision, will this promote my holiness? Ooh. Singleness is preferred by Paul only because there's one less factor there that will get in the way of undistracted devotion to God. He's not against marriage. He's just saying, listen, you want my opinion? I think it's the better way to go. If you're married, if you have children, you're going to need a whole lot more grace to serve the Lord with an undivided heart, and he is kind to give us that grace. But you know, friends, and I won't speak for you here, if I'm honest, my life is so very divided. My first desire when I wake up in the morning is not typically, Lord, how can I please you today? It's how can I please me today? And then, if I have any energy left over, how can I please Michelle? And how can I please my children? And how can I please my friends? And how can I please my church family? I'm just honest. My heart is divided. I don't think by characteristic according to the way that Paul is talking here. And I'm constantly trying to leave the situation that God's assigned to me. I'm constantly trying to get out of feeling uncomfortable. Anyone with me here? Anyone say amen to that? But you know, there's a reason why a bluebird doesn't hunt gazelle in the African bush. And there's a reason why salmon don't graze in fields. And there's a reason why elephants don't make nests in trees. Why? Because they're content with the station that God has assigned to them. Well, someone says, of course they are. They don't have a will. They don't have volition. They instinctively do exactly what they were created to do, and they have no choice. Ah, but yes, friends, we do. We do have a choice. And because God knows that we are prone to wander, this is what he did for us. He wrote us into his story of redemption in Jesus. And then he parsed out and he assigned various stations of life for us to live in all throughout our time 
here on the earth. And our place and our job situation and the relationship status that he has given to us. Why? Because he knows that those places are the best places for us to be fully devoted to him. Those places are where his priorities will control our priorities. Dear ones, no matter where we are today, no matter how happy or hard your life is, your station is a holy place because you are there with God. It wasn't in the palace that Moses heard God say, take off your shoes where you are standing as holy ground. It was in the back of a desert somewhere on hot sand smelling like nasty sheep that the Lord said, where you are is holy ground. And just as Aaron read to us earlier, the Lord will wait in order to be gracious to us. He's put us here to be gracious to us, to show us that he's good, to show us that he's worthy of our full devotion. And he has us here to teach us the contentment of bluebirds and elephants who are content in their station and who receive food from his hand in due season. So friends, the question you ought to be asking as you end this chapter and we go on and we start talking about brotherly love and food offered up to idols, the question we ought to be asking is, how, God, can I remain where I am and yet hold fast my purpose that you've called me to, to be devoted wholeheartedly to you. Well, friends, as we finish up, I want to step back with you, and I want us to one more time ascend to that summit, to that mountaintop. And I want you to look with me. And I want you to, with spiritual eyes, look out, and I want you to see that all of history is barreling forward to a very quick and speedy end. All of history is leading to a consummate end, a consummate day. And there's going to come a day, and it could be this one, where the clouds part and the Lord himself will descend with a shout. And while all around us people are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage like in the days of Noah, Paul says, I want you to know that the appointed time has grown very short and don't lose that thought because the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Who then, Jesus says, is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So what does undivided devotion to the Lord look like in the season of life that God's called you to? Well, of course, I don't know that. The station that God has assigned to you is for you, but very practically, at the very least, I think we can all say that it means looking at my life and judging, evaluating, being honest before the Lord and asking hard questions. 
When was the last time, friends, we asked a question of the Lord where we knew the answer would possibly not be a good one? When was the last time we asked the Lord in prayer, Lord, make me like you. I desire to be holy like you. Make me like you. That's a scary prayer to pray. Because the will of God for us is our sanctification and he will do it. So consider just a few ways that we could parse out that question and then I'll close in prayer. Think about our schedule for a moment. Our daily routines, patterns, rhythms. Here's a question we can ask. Does my schedule facilitate my holiness and body and spirit? In other words, do I I position myself in such a way that I am best able within my limitations and my sinful heart to love God with my whole heart, mind, body, and strength? Does my friend group enable me to do that? Do the activities I engage in enable me to be holy? Does my sleep schedule enable me to be holy? And I say that knowing there are parents in here, you don't have a sleep schedule, it's okay. But those of us that have a sleep schedule, does our sleep schedule enable us to be holy? How about spiritual disciplines? Aaron just introduced one that we're all going to start together as a church. I'm so excited about this week of prayer and fasting. But Bible intake, Bible meditation, gathering together with the rest of the body, spiritual disciplines. Do my spiritual disciplines, the ones that is outlined in Scripture, these means of grace, do these things facilitate holiness in my life because I prioritize them? Do I prioritize the spiritual disciplines over leisure time with my family or are these things just fillers that I squeeze in if I have an extra 30 seconds in my day? It's a question we need to ask. If I'm single, if you're single, here's a question you can ask. How does God's no for marriage right now enable you to say yes to him in other areas? Is the money that you're saving for a future in this world without disparaging the wisdom of saving for the future, is that money being used to invest in things that last? And I would say that to all of us. Is my free time being given to things that please God? You hear us talk about this all the time. Discipleship of younger Christians. Times in prayer for those people in our body who are suffering, going going through hardships. Am I making the best use of my time as a single person? That's the question Paul wants us to ask. If you're married, how does our calling to marriage enable us to be devoted to the Lord together? Who are the people that we should have at our table this week? is a question we could ask. What large family with little ones could we tag team together to babysit? How can our joint income better support the spread of the gospel here at Grace City Church? And you're gonna get a chance to hear all about that in just a few minutes when we introduce our capital campaign. 
If you're in a difficult marriage, what questions could you ask? Dear ones, if you're in a difficult marriage, you will experience a devotion to the Lord that none of us will. If your husband or wife is not loving you as God commands them to, God may be using the fallenness of this world and your spouse to show you something about Jesus that you don't know. To show you that he is the spouse that will never leave you. If you're in a difficult marriage, I just want to encourage you, keep doing what you are doing. Keep being faithful where you are. Keep being faithful to family devotions. Keep loving your children. This may feel small, but dear one, this is pleasing to the Lord. Guys, these are the kinds of questions I think Paul would have us end this chapter with. Not to put a noose on our necks, not to restrict us, but to keep before us the reality that time is short. The end of the horizon is clear. And God has assigned to you and me a perfect life situation that will enable us to contribute to the hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord. Isn't that something? God has given it to me and you to contribute to the hastening of the coming of the day of Christ. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Let's pray.